All right, well, praise God for the gift of children, and we certainly have a plentiful gift here at this church. Jim was telling me last week, I think we have 18 sixth graders transitioning into student minister next year. Uh, so we are super grateful for that opportunity, and to see the next generation of those who will be in student ministry sometime down the road is a blessing for sure, and does remind us that we need to be praying. Uh, ultimately, we want our kids to know the hope of Jesus Christ. All that to say, I think one of the ways that we can point our kids, and for that matter, every adult who steps in this room to the hope of Jesus Christ is to open up the Word of God every single Sunday. That's what we're going to do this morning. We are in Genesis chapter 3, finishing our series on Genesis 1 to 3 this morning. This morning, that means that we will be in Genesis 3, verses 20 to 24. Here at Free Money Free, as you know, we like to take books of the Bible or portions of books of the Bible and preach to them verse by verse. That's what we've been doing over the course of the last three months in Genesis 1 to 3, and that's where we are this morning. Let me pray, and we'll get to it. Uh, Father, we thank you for the opportunity to gather together as your people and to open up your word. And this morning, our prayer is that you would enable us to be able to have ears to hear. I pray that you would enable me to be faithful to teach what your word says. And I pray that when we leave here today, we would have a greater understanding of who you are and a greater love for who you are and a greater desire to worship you in all of your glory. So God, we just pray in this moment that you would help us that you would help us to be faithful, but you would help us also to be attentive, and you'd help us to be ready to hear from you. God, we pray that you would do what you can do, which is to speak powerfully through your word. We pray that you do that this morning. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So indeed, for the last three months now, we've been spending time in Genesis 1 to 3, slowly, maybe some of you would say too slowly, but slowly making our way through the first three chapters of the Bible. And having spent that amount of time in Genesis 1 to 3, it's not hard to see why these chapters are some of the most important in terms of foundation in all of Scripture, and yet at the same time, some of the most debated in all of Scripture. Whether it be questions related to the timing and details of creation, or questions regarding gender and marriage, the nature of relationship between men and women, or even questions about the origins of evil, there is certainly no shortage of discussion-generating material in the first three chapters of the Bible. And to be absolutely clear, these discussions matter. As we said at the beginning of our series, many of the debates and issues that we're having in our culture today can be traced back to a fundamental misunderstanding of what's being taught in Genesis 1 to 3. Or maybe more accurately, many of the debates and issues that we're facing in our culture today can be traced back to a dismissal of the realities that are taught in Genesis 1 to 3. Largely speaking, as a culture, we've dismissed or twisted or in many cases just flat out rejected the teaching of Genesis 1 to 3 on crucial issues like creation gender, marriage, the reality of sin and evil. And we've done so to our own peril. And make no mistake about it, the more we distance ourselves as a culture from the teaching of these first three chapters of the Bible, the more perilous our situation will become. We need to be reminded that God indeed is the creator of the heavens and the earth. We're not here by accident. That we are created in his image and thus all people have value. That he created us male and female with distinctions. The marriage is his idea created by him as an institution between one man and one woman. And the reason why the world is so messed up is because of sin. These are fundamental truths that we ignore to our own destruction. But having said all that, it's also vital that we remember the main focus of these first chapters in Genesis. The first three chapters of the book of Genesis are not primarily about the timing and details of creation or about God's design for men and women or about the nature and origins of evil. The first three chapters of the book of Genesis are primarily about God. 
As one commentator put it, and we quoted the first week of this series, the book of Genesis is more concerned with God the creator than with the timing and details of creation. So if your main takeaway from our series on Genesis 1 to 3 is connected to the age of the earth or God's design for humanity or a better understanding of why there's evil in the world, it seems likely, if that's your main takeaway, that perhaps you've missed the forest through the trees. Now, obviously, all those issues are important, and one of the great values of walking through Genesis 1 and 3 is we've been forced to deal with all those things. But the forest, if you will, the main point of Genesis 1 to 3 is focused on the Creator. As is the case with the rest of the Bible, God is the focal point of the first three chapters of the Bible. And we saw this from the very beginning of the book, Genesis 1, 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God is the first subject in the Bible. And fittingly, he is also the primary character in the last section of our series on Genesis 1 to 3. As we come to a conclusion today of our series on Genesis 1 to 3, it's fitting that God takes center stage in the final verses of Genesis 3. The fact that he does take center stage is entirely appropriate and expected. Because again, Genesis 1 to 3 is ultimately and primarily about God. And we're going to see that one last time in Genesis 1 to 3. So if you would, please stand now out of reverence for the reading of God's word. Genesis 3, verses 20 to 24. Standing a simple way to remind ourselves it's the word of God as such, it's due our attention. So the final verses here in Genesis 3, starting in verse 20, say this. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reached out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. It's the word of God you may be seated. So in verse 20 here of Genesis chapter 3, Adam names his wife Eve. But then in the rest of the passage, in verses 21 to 24, God is the one making things happen. He is the primary character and the agent of action. And with God as the focal point of the action, the final verses in Genesis 3 give us some insight into the nature and character of who God is. And actually, it's his character that I want us to focus in on this morning. More specifically, in Genesis 3, verses 20 to 24, there are three things about God's character that I want us to zero in on today. The first is simply this, that God is just. All right, so again, three things we're focusing on his character. The first is that God is just. By just, we mean that God is good and right in all of his judgments. That he is a God of justice and righteousness and holiness. All that he does is morally upright and fair. He does not fly off the handle and unjustly punish sin, but nor does he overlook injustice and let wickedness prevail. He righteously judges sin. He is just. And we see his righteous justice very clearly in this passage today. But to understand why God is displaying his righteous justice in verses 20 to 24, we probably first need to refresh ourselves as to the context of these verses. We need to put verses 20 to 24 in the context of the book of Genesis as a whole. So again, as we've done several times the last few weeks, let's briefly rewind here. In Genesis 1, God creates the heavens and the earth, and all that he creates is very good. In Genesis 2, the tension shifts specifically to God's creation of man and woman and God's relationship with man and woman. Again, we're meant to understand that this relationship is very good. But in Genesis 3, where we've been now the last four, week, four weeks, things go terribly wrong. In Genesis 2, God had told Adam that he may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil he shall not eat. 
But then in Genesis 3, at the prompting of the serpent, Eve and Adam disobeyed that command. They ate of the forbidden fruit, and in doing so, they rebelled against the authority of their creator. And as a result of their fall, sin entered the world, and everything was messed up. We've seen this the last few weeks now. Immediately, Adam and Eve's, Adam and Eve's sin separated them relationally from God. As we saw in verses 7 to 13, when Adam and Eve sinned, their eyes were opened. And they became aware of their nakedness, and in their shame, they hid from God. Verses 14 to 19, God pronounces his righteous judgment over the serpent and over Eve and over Adam. And as we said last week, the ongoing effects of those judgments are still in place today. As a result of the fall, as we discussed last week, life on this planet is difficult and death is inevitable. But there's one final act in God's righteous judgment of Adam and Eve's sin. And you could argue argue that that final act of judgment is perhaps the most devastating of all at least specifically for Adam and Eve. And we see that righteous act of judgment in verses 22 to 24. So let's pick up the story again in verse 22. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So in verses 22 to 24, God drives Adam and Eve out of the garden. The word drove here is a strong verb. It suggests that he's banishing them. And in that, we're meant to understand that not only were Adam and Eve being banished from the garden, more significantly, they are being banished from the presence of God. If ever there was a sad, sad scene in Scripture, then surely this is one of the saddest. Adam was put in the garden to work it and keep it. But now instead of keeping the garden, he's being kept from the garden by angelic beings with flaming swords. And more importantly, he's being kept now from the presence of God. Can you imagine what must have been running through Adam's mind as he stood outside the garden for the first time and contemplated what he had just done? Can you imagine the loss that he and Eve must have felt in that moment, and especially the loss they must have felt in being separated from God? We lived in Louisville, Kentucky for three years while I attended graduate school for ministry seminary. During those three years, we attended LaGrange Baptist Church in LaGrange, Kentucky, and it was at that church that we met our dear friends, Jeff and Brittany Collier. Jeff and Brittany were in the same stage of life as us and had many similar interests to us. And so we built a fast friendship with them. During our three years in Kentucky, we spent many, many nights together playing cards or board games, watching sports, eating food together. More than that, though, we had a friendship that was based on our mutual love for Jesus. And so it was a sweet, sweet gift to us to have this type of friendship. And it was a unique one, and it was before we had kids. So we just had more time to spend with them and more time to build deep roots of friendship. And so when I graduated from seminary and took a job in Amarillo, Texas as a youth pastor, one of the hardest things we had to do was say goodbye to our friends, the Colliers. In fact, I vividly remember saying goodbye to them at their house, giving them hugs, hopping in the car, and then backing down their driveway as tears were streaming down my face. Now, I'm not sure it's okay for me as a Midwesterner to admit that. I know as Midwesterners, we're not expected to show a lot of emotion, especially as guys. So maybe I'm supposed to tell you that as we backed away, I clenched my jaw, I buckled my seatbelt, and I told Tony, get on with life. Maybe that's what I'm supposed to do. I kind of think not, based on what Scripture teaches about emotions being a good thing, but even if that's what I'm supposed to say, I can't tell you that because that's not what happened. I was a tear-faced mess as we were backing out of the driveway to the point that I could barely see anything. And the reason why I was so sad is because I knew in that moment we were losing precious friends that day and things would never be the same. 
Now, I knew we could keep in contact, and we have. In fact, they visited us here this last month. But in that moment, I also knew enough about life to know it would not be the same. No matter how much we hoped things could stay the same, once you move and you're not in the same location, friendships change. Now, listen, that's okay. That's part of life, but it's still sad. When you go separate directions, there's a severing of a relationship that even if it's not intentional and even if it's just partial, it's still painful. But listen, if that's how I felt in that driveway that day in Kentucky, what must have Adam and Eve been thinking as they stood outside the garden? As they looked at the cherubim with flaming swords guarding the entrance to the garden, keeping them from the tree of life, and most crucially, signifying their separation from the living God. What kind of pain and sorrow and regret must Adam and Eve have been feeling that day? You can't even imagine. To know that one day they're going to die physically as a result of their sin, that was one thing. But to be cut off from God's presence, that's another. To paraphrase one commentator, the expulsion from the garden of delight where God himself dwelled would have been regarded by the godly man as yet more catastrophic than physical death. But as devastating as that realization must have been for Adam and Eve, the thing we need to understand this morning is simply this. God was completely just and fair in casting Adam and Eve out of the garden away from his presence. In Genesis 2.16, God had warned Adam that if he ate of the fruit of the forbidden tree, he would die. And on the day that Adam and Eve ate of that fruit, that's exactly what happened. They did die. In their expulsion from the garden, Adam and Eve experienced a spiritual death and that they were alienated from the presence of God. Now, eventually, they would die physically too. But the spiritual death came first, and the spiritual death was the fulfillment of God's warning in Genesis 2. And again, to be absolutely clear, God was just in carrying out this judgment. He told them what he would do if they disobeyed. And when they did so, he simply did what he said he would do. In Genesis 3 then, there's no hint that God is unfair in his punishment. There's no suggestion that he's unrighteous in his judgment. There's no indication that he's reacting impulsively in anger here. Instead, we're left with a very clear picture. God is righteous in his judgment. Adam and Eve got exactly what they deserved. There's nothing unfair about the punishment here in Genesis 3. And make no mistake about it, this is part of God's character. He is a God of justice. He must punish sin. He cannot overlook wrongdoing. And the fact that he is just and that he does punish sin is not an evidence of a flaw in his character, but rather evidence of the goodness of his character. I mean, think about it this way. If you had a family member that was brutally abused and then murdered and the killer was caught, if that killer came before the judge and the judge simply said, well, I'm a gracious judge, I'll just let the killer go, you would not praise that judge and say, oh, look, they're so lenient and merciful. Instead, you would rightly question their moral goodness. How could you just let a killer go? A good judge cannot simply overlook wrongdoing. In the same way, God cannot overlook sin. As evidenced by the count here in Genesis 3, he must punish sin. He is just. In his justice, he must righteously deal with sin. Which, by the way, serves as a warning for every person in this room. We cannot escape the justice of God. But, while that's true that he is just, there's also another element of his character that's present in this same story in Genesis 3. The second element of the character is simply this, that God is merciful. So God is just, but he's also merciful. Again, without question, God's justice is on display here throughout Genesis 3. He rightly punishes sin. But God's mercy is everywhere in this chapter too. We saw it in his approach to Adam and Eve in verses 8 to 13. 
Instead of striking them down immediately, instead he searches them out and asks the question, where are you? In doing so, he's demonstrating that he's a God who seeks after lost sinners. He's demonstrating his mercy. We saw his mercy again in last week's passage. In the midst of his judgment of the serpent and Eve and Adam, there was the precious promise of verse 15, that one day an offspring of Eve would crush the head of the serpent. As we said last week, that promise was ultimately fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And again, in promising that in verse 15, God is demonstrating his mercy. We see that same mercy at work in our passage today. Look at verses 20 and 21. Verse 20, we read this. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. So in verses 20 and 21, we see God's mercy in a couple of different ways. In Adam naming Eve the mother of all living, we're reminded that God did not strike down Adam and Eve immediately, but rather Eve would have children, who would have more children, who would have more children and more children, and on and on we would go until eventually that offspring of Eve would crush the head of the serpent. In other words, the statement of verse 20, that Eve was the mother of all living, reminds us that God will indeed keep his promise from verse 15. Eventually, the serpent will be defeated, and the offspring of Eve will prevail. And in that, God's mercy is displayed. But his mercy is also at work in verse 21. Back in chapter 3, verse 7, when the man and woman realized that they were naked, they sewed fig leaves together and made loincloths to cover themselves. But those fig leaves would have been no match for the elements outside the garden. So God, in his mercy, makes garments of skin and clothes them. The wording here suggests that the garments would go down their knees, maybe even their ankles, providing protection that the fig loincloths could not. And many over the years have pointed out that to make garments like this, God would have shed the blood of animals. And in doing so, perhaps he's pointing ahead to the sacrificial system to come in which the shedding of blood was necessary to cover sin. Again, ultimately fulfilled in Christ. Now, we don't know for sure that's what's happening here in the making of the garments, but it certainly seems plausible. Either way, though, between the offspring of Eve and the garments of verse 21, we are reminded that God is merciful. He does not always treat his creatures as they deserve. In his mercy, he extends grace and covers our sin and shame. Now, in saying that, we need to be careful to point out that his mercy does not negate his justice, which brings us to the third observation about his character in this passage, and that is this, that God is both just and merciful at the same time. Now, if you've been paying attention to this point, you might be asking yourself this question. Okay, wait a minute. If the first observation was that God is just, and the second observation is that he is merciful, how is the third observation that he's both just and merciful, how is that a new observation? Wouldn't that kind of be like observing a zebra is partially white, a zebra is partially black, a zebra is both black and white, right? How does the third observation add to the first two? So first of all, let me just say this. If you're paying attention to the point that you're asking those types of questions, I just want you to know I really like you. You are my type of listener. And if I had a prize to give you, I would give you a prize this morning, maybe a portrait of a zebra or something like that. But secondly, whether you've been paying attention or not, I think it's important that I explain the distinction I'm trying to make here. I think most of us understand that God can be just. I think most of us understand that God can be merciful. But we have a hard time understanding that he can be both at the same time. But what I'm arguing is that he is both at the same time. In other words, he's not switching modes. He's not at one time just, and now he's merciful, and he's switching back and forth, ping-ponging between the two. Or maybe to use some terms that at least one of my coworkers would appreciate, <coughs> Jim, God is not like the Incredible Hulk, right? In the Avenger movies or the comic books, by the way, I did confirm this with Jim this week. Hopefully I got my details correctly. In the comic books or in the movies, the Incredible Hulk is normally a mild-mannered scientist named Bruce Banner. 
He's normal looking, kind of a wimpy guy. But when Bruce Banner gets really fired up, it's then that he turns into the Hulk. He gets really big and green and angry and he starts smashing everything. Right? In essence, then, there are two modes to the Hulk. He's either the mild-mannered scientist, Bruce Banner, or he's the violent, smashing, green monster Hulk. But he's not both at the same time. He's not both at the same time. Here's the point. I think we sometimes think that God is like the Hulk and that he's either just or he's merciful. He's switching from one mode to the next. Here he's just, here he's merciful. We think that he's not both at the same time. And it's because of that we say things like, well, in the Old Testament, God was wrathful and angry. But in the New Testament, he's compassionate and gracious. Or to use an analogy, in the Old Testament, he's like the Hulk. In the New Testament, he's like Bruce Banner. But not only is that conclusion faulty from an observation standpoint, in the, in the Old Testament, there are plenty of examples of God's mercy. In the New Testament, there are plenty of examples of his righteous wrath. But it also fundamentally misunderstands the nature of God's character. God is not like the Hulk in that he switches from mode to mode. He maintains all of his characteristics at all times, which means, in this case, he is always fully just and he is always fully merciful. Now, the relationship between how he displays his justice and mercy and how sometimes his justice will come to the forefront, sometimes his mercy is a bit complex, and we'll come back to the complexity here shortly. But for now, my point is simply this. God is both merciful and just at the same time. And in fact, we see this throughout Scripture, including even in our passage today. Look one more time at verses 22 to 24. All right, verse 22. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man at the east of the Garden of Eden. He placed the cherubim in a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Now, obviously, verses 22 to 24 display the justice of God. In fact, when I was talking about the justice of God, these are the verses that I went to. He banishes Adam and Eve from the garden. He casts them out of his presence. They're being kept away from the tree of life. But while this does display his justice, I would also argue that in verses 22 to 24, we see a huge element of God's mercy. Think about it this way. Had God not cut off access to the tree of life, Adam and Eve would have been perpetually stuck in their state of sin. And they would have been perpetually stuck in this broken world. And that would have been a major problem. When I was younger, I remember hearing mythical stories about the fountain of youth. Supposedly, the Spanish explorer Juan Ponce de Leon was searching for the fountain of youth in Florida in the 1500s. As legend has it, if anyone found that fountain of youth, anyone who would drink or bathe in that mythical fountain would have their youth restored and theoretically could live forever. Now, even as a kid, I knew this was a pretty far-fetched idea. I mean, do we really think there's a fountain of youth? And if we really think there's a fountain of youth, do we really think it would be in Florida? But I'll admit, the idea of a fountain of youth seemed pretty appealing as a kid, even if I thought it was far-fetched. I thought, oh man, I can live forever? I would never die? You can sign me up. But I'll say this, now that I'm getting older, that idea doesn't sound so appealing anymore. Just this last week, I was reading about two teenage boys who grew up in a town in rural southern Iowa, about an hour away from where I grew up. One of the boys was getting a bad grade in his high school Spanish class. And so he and his friend waited for the Spanish teacher she went on a, she, as she went on a walk in a local park, and then they beat her to death with a baseball bat. I mean, it, it's a story that as you read it, just makes you sick to your stomach. But this is the world we live in. In fact, if I wanted to, I could find a thousand stories just like that that happened this week. 
Now, this particular story hit home with me just because it was so close to my hometown. But my point is, the world we live in is absolutely messed up. Why would we want to live here forever? Why would we want to live forever in a land of sickness and injury, wickedness, murder, injustice, rape, abuse, genocide? How would that be enjoyable? Now, I'm not saying that I'm longing for death because death is still scary. And obviously, I'm not trying to speed along my death as God is the one who determines my days. But the older I get, I have to say, living forever here doesn't sound so great. It actually sounds kind of awful. In God's justice, he cast Adam and Eve out of the garden, away from his presence. But in his mercy, in his mercy, he cut off access to the tree of life. So that one day Adam and Eve would die and escape the brokenness of this world and potentially be restored into the presence of God. But the only way that could happen, the only way that they could be restored, or for that matter that any of us could be restored, is through the righteous actions of another. A second Adam who would always obey God. One who would be tempted like Adam was, but would not give in. And of course, we know from the New Testament in Romans 5, the passage we read last week, that the second Adam is Jesus. And that brings us to the ultimate example of God's justice and mercy coinciding at the same time, the cross of Jesus Christ. I'm going to ask you, if you have your Bibles, to go and turn to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3, verses 23 to 26. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there. If not, you can just listen along. I think these verses in Romans 3... And actually, they're going to be on the screen as well. Romans 3, verses 23 to 26. I think this is the great example that we can find of God's justice and mercy colliding together. All right, so Romans 3, starting in verse 23, says this. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a perpetuation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over his former sins. And here's the key verse, verse 26. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. All right, there's a lot to unpack here in Romans 3. I'm not going to pack all of it. I'm going to try to make it as simple as I can. At the cross, God's justice and mercy collided. In his justice, God must punish sin. But in his mercy, God loves lost sinners. And so Jesus went to the cross so that God could be both just and justifier. At the cross, the punishment for sin was paid. And thus Jesus fulfilled the righteous demands of God's justice. Jesus took the punishment we deserved. But in taking the punishment we deserved, he also demonstrated his mercy. That if we trust in Jesus, we can be declared not guilty. We can be justified on the basis of Jesus' substitutionary death, meaning he was our substitute and his perfect righteousness credited to our account. So God then is, through Jesus Christ, both just and justifier. He's both just and merciful. And that's what I mean when I say that God can be both just and merciful at the same time. We tend to think that God is like the Hulk, bouncing from one mode to another. Either he's like the overzealous cop, wanting to display justice at every turn, Or he's like the overindulgent parent who just turns his head the other way and and ignores our sin. But that's not who God is. He is both just and merciful, and he is just and merciful at the same time. Now to be sure, and this is where we get to the complexity of it, not everyone will experience his justice and mercy at the same time. If you do not turn to Jesus Christ for salvation, hear this clearly. There will come a day when the opportunity for mercy will be gone, and you'll be left only to deal with his justice. In hell, God's righteous justice will reign and there will no longer be access to his compassionate mercy. 
Conversely, if you trusted in Christ, there will come a day where his justice will no longer need to be displayed. There will be no more evil or wickedness or sin to deal with in glory. In glory, we will live forever in a, we will live forever in a state of perpetual bliss because Jesus already paid the punishment for our sin, satisfying God's justice, and then we'll, thus we'll be free to live with him forever without fear of condemnation or without fear of punishment. And for that matter, we won't have to worry about wickedness around us either. And that will be a glorious day. That will be a glorious day where we no longer have to worry about being punished for our sin because Jesus already took the punishment for us. And get this, and this kind of now brings things full circle from Genesis to Revelation. On that day, we will also have access to the tree of life. In Revelation, the tree of life is mentioned on at least four different occasions. Perhaps the most striking reference, at least as it relates to our passage today, is found in Revelation twenty-two fourteen. 14. It says this, Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have right, the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Now, it's hard to hear that verse and not think of Genesis 3, verses 20 to 24. In Genesis 3, 20 to 24, Adam and Eve are cast out of the garden. They no longer have access to God's presence, and they are kept from the tree of life. But in Revelation 22, those whose robes have been washed in the blood of the Lamb have access to the city. In other words, there's no more flaming swords. There's no more angels guarding the way. And they have the right to the tree of life. And all of it is because God is both just and merciful. Sin had to be paid for. But in his mercy, Jesus paid the penalty for us. And because of that, we can once again have access to the tree of life. So listen, I know that people want to make the book of Genesis about a lot of different things. And specifically, as it relates to Genesis 1 to 3, they want to zero in on certain details. Some want to focus on the details of the creation story in terms of how old the earth and all that. Others on God's plan for marriage and gender and humanity. Still others on the origins and natures of evil. And I get all that because all those elements are important. And all those elements need to be discussed. But at the end of the day, let us never forget that the book of Genesis is ultimately about God. It's more about the creator and less about the timing and details of creation. And while that's true for the book of Genesis as a whole, and while it's true for Genesis 1 to 3 as a whole, it's also true for our passage today. In Genesis 3, 20 to 24, we could focus on all kinds of different things. We could focus on Eve being the mother of all living and all that that entails. We can think about the garments of skin in verse 21 and perhaps how those garments of skin point ahead to the need for the shedding of blood. We could talk about the cherubim and the flaming sword and how there's some parallels there with the tabernacle and the temple. And nothing would be wrong with thinking about any of those things. But at the end of the day, Genesis 3, 20 to 24, like the rest of the book of Genesis and like the rest of the Bible, is ultimately about God. A God who is just and punishes sin. A God who's merciful and loves lost sinner. A God who's both just and merciful at the same time. And again, in that, you'd be hard-pressed not to think that Genesis 3, 20 to 24 is pointing us ahead to Jesus Christ. At the cross, through the actions of Christ, God proved himself to be both just and justifier. He demonstrated that he was a God of mercy and justice. But in retrospect, that passage in Romans 3 should not be too surprising to us, should it? Because as the book of Genesis reminds us, from the beginning, God has always been this way. He has always been a just God, a merciful God, a God who's both just and merciful at the same time. And so that's the God that we worship. And that's the God that sent his son to die on the cross, proving himself to be both just and justifier. And so when we think about Genesis, 
My contention is that's what we should be thinking about. A God who loved us enough to send his son to die for us. A God who was just and merciful at the same time. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the book of Genesis and the refresher it's been to us. And ultimately how it's helped us to see you more clearly. And God, I pray that in light of who you are, we would live differently. That we would live as those who understand that you are just and merciful. And you're just and merciful at the same time. So Lord, help us to live that way and help us to worship you. Help us to be people who take your justice seriously, but also who relish your mercy. Help us to be people who understand who you are correctly so that we might live appropriately. Father, I pray in light of all that we've learned in Genesis that we would come away with one overarching reminder that you are a good God and you are to be worshipped. So in Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, let's stand now for a benediction, which is going to come from the book of Numbers this morning. Numbers chapter 6. It says this, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Indeed, have a good week. You're dismissed.